Now it's time for Inspirational Women and my guest, Joni Rogers, an author, screenwriter, and celebrity ghostwriter. So ideal for any time, but definitely during Women's History Month, it's wonderful to have Joni here to share her story, how, as the numbers in our age increase, we need to embrace this as life wisdom and believe that the best is yet ahead. Good morning, Joni Rogers. Thank you for um, having me, Paul. Thank you for interviewing me. I'm very excited. I'm thrilled to be having an opportunity to have this conversation, which with everything rolled up together, the subject of the 6-0 collection of your 6-0, all of the wisdom collected to being who we are as we are more mature, all of that, you know, during Women's History Month, I think it's just... So perfect to have this conversation. So I'm oh, grateful. I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad to be part of it. So Joni, as we think about maturing and the adventures that are ahead and changes that we make in our life, you made a fairly big change uh, just a few years ago in relocating. Yes, I live right on the beach in Westport. It is the loveliest place you can imagine living as a writer it's like I live at a writer's retreat basically (laughs) which isn't unusual here in the northwest there are quite a number of authors who live here in the Puget Sound area you know there is just something about the Pacific Northwest that feeds the creative spirit I don't know if it's the mossy trees that reveal themselves or what I mean My husband and I actually had been living in Houston, Texas for many years, Mm. and we were looking for a place to end up after our retirement and kind of just came to Westport on a sort of whim. A friend had mentioned, oh, there's this cool little fishing town on the coast in Washington State. And when I Googled it, the first thing I saw was the lighthouse, and I had just recently read the book by Virginia Woolf to the lighthouse. Mm. I had read that to my mother as she was dying of Alzheimer's Mm. and the lighthouse imagery has always meant something to me. So when I saw that lighthouse, I was like, we have to go there this weekend. And so we did. The weather was horrific. It was (laughs) like 40 degrees. The wind was blowing. It was raining. I went out on the beach the first morning and I walked for about four hours and I never saw another living soul. And when I came back to this Airbnb condo that we had gotten, I sat down and just words poured out of me. I wrote for the rest of the day and just did a ridiculous amount of creative thinking, solved creative problems that had been you know, really bollocksing me for a while. And I told my husband, I got to live here. <laughs> and that's, so, yeah, 10 days later, we bought one of the condos. And yeah, the rest is, it's a lovely part of our history. We really love it here. I love that. That is a wonderful story wrapped up with how inspiring it was for you. And yeah, it's a spectacular, beautiful, quiet. It's like a little part of the world that the rest of the world has forgotten. And I'll be so sad when we get discovered and gentrified because right now it's just quiet, one stoplight, and um, that kind of a vibe. 
Well, isn't that wonderful to have just been drawn there and realized this is where you need to be? Yeah, I think the only other time I've had that deep, immediate reaction to something was when I met my husband. And I just felt home, you know? I felt this immediate connection of, this is my life right here. And I think you have to follow your gut with those with those moments. You know, when you're in your 20s, maybe those moments could probably mislead you. But I think by the time we get into, like, I just turned 60, I trust my gut higher than anything that goes against me. You know, people will try to, it's so much easier to tear down than it is to build up. So if you have an idea, you're going to find 10 people to tell you how it won't work. Mm-hmm. You've got to trust your gut and tell you that you know what's right. I mean, all my friends in Houston were telling me, what? You've been living in a metroplex of 6 million people. How are you going to go to that place and not have a major airport right by you <laughs> and, you know, a million restaurants and Starbucks down the street and all that stuff? And so I was kind of prepared mentally to make a lot less money. I thought that my work as a ghostwriter was going to take a big hit because I would be so much more removed from the New York, LA, Washington kind of air traffic that I used to do. It's a lot more complicated now to get anywhere. And instead, my income as a ghostwriter blossomed because I'm so much happier. How about that? Isn't that incredible? Yeah, I, I think it's all one. You know, when we go to that place where we're really living our authentic life that resonates within, it's going to resonate outwardly as well. And regarding your husband and the change for him? Since he retired, he's completely blossomed as an artist. It's really been exciting for me to see him leave a world of mechanics and in being the enforcer and the boss of people to being in his own head and being in his own creative space. He's really quite brilliant, actually. <laughs> and I saw that on your website, that he is an artist. And I think you say something to the effect of sometimes he lets you just dabble in this with him. <laughs> I love to throw paint on walls in between uh, book projects. And so he's done a few mural projects that I've assisted him with. And I just love the process of there's just something about painting on a wall that is different from painting on a canvas. You know, Mm -hmm. it's almost like getting a tattoo, It's a little more permanent than a sticker. And just the physical work of it. I spend so much time sitting here at my computer, typing away. And a big book project that has a tight deadline, you know, I'm working 13, 14 hours a day for 12, 14, 16 weeks. It's intense. And so just to be able to get up and do that physical stretch, the physical act, and yet it's this incredibly creative endeavor that you step back and you see something beautiful that has nothing to do with words. It's a great vacation from writing. And perhaps one, in a way, feeds the other, or certainly taking that break and letting yourself move and seeing the color then feeds the writing creativity. For sure. I think that's so important for writers to remember that 
there's this world of words, but then there's a world beyond that. And I really wrapped my head around that for the first time when my mom was dying of Alzheimer's. She was a newspaper editor and a writer. And so this thing that we had shared so much in our life, you know, a love of books, a love of writing, a serious devotion to the craft of writing. There are only a few people in my life with whom I shared that, and my mom was one. And so as she lost that aspect of her mind, for me to find a place where we could move past language and be together on the level of emotion, that was really a precious experience for me. It was a huge privilege for me to be so present while she was going through that. You know, I hated it that she had to go through that, but it definitely was one of the most precious experiences of my life. Oh, there's so much in that, what you have just shared, Joni, about these really terrible, tragic kinds of things that happen, like Alzheimer's, Yet mm-hmm. being able to find some gift in it and being able to not be pushed out away from it, wanting to leave that person behind, but being able to embrace them. For sure. And I think those crucible moments in our lives are this opportunity for an immense amount of creativity, whether it's self-recreation or the act of creating something that's our way of processing and expressing that. In the book that you're reading, Crazy for Trying, that was my first novel that I wrote while I was in chemotherapy. When I was 32, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's a really virulent form of blood cancer. And so I was really ill, mostly isolated. My kids were five and seven. And so it was just a really difficult experience for me and Gary. But my life raft in that moment was this story, this book, and these characters. And as I came out of chemotherapy and I started trying to rebuild my life, in a way that was going to have to be radically different. I mean, it had, chemotherapy had destroyed my voice. So I couldn't go back to radio. I couldn't go back to singing for a living. And voice acting, which had been a huge part of my life before, I was going to have to do something different. This book being published and so well received 25 years ago, it gave me something to be. And I found that I loved the writing process more than I had imagined I would, discovered so much about the alignment of theater and writing, especially with ghostwriting when I'm collaborating with someone. Then you've got that collaborative process of creation. And honestly, if I had not gone through chemotherapy and that crucible moment, Maybe I would have discovered that at some point in my life, but certainly not at 32. It was the furthest thing from my mind that I could become a writer. 
That is so amazing. I had not realized that you had that previous background, but was reading about you're going through chemo and doing the writing. So here again, similarly to how you lived with the time of your mother going through the Alzheimer's and the end of her life, again, using these terrible, tragic moments to create something different, it's just so huge and overwhelming. I think always the good and the bad, these things kind of layer in decade after decade. And I can see now with the work that I do now and the place where I've gotten to in my career and personally, that the good, the bad and the ugly, <laughs> it, all, it all comes together. And I was raised in a family bluegrass band so I grew up performing on stage. Frankly, I thought it was an easy way to make a living, that you could always make money doing something that was fun and creative. And, you know, to come to a place where I couldn't fall back on that was a little bit scary. But there's a value in being open, I think, just rolling with the changes and recognizing that Life is full of unexpected joy, unexpected woe, and it's all going to add up to change. And whether that changes for the better or worse, that kind of is within your control to some extent. There's looking at life more philosophically in that way of, okay, this is happening. What am I to learn? What can I do with this? It doesn't have to devastate me. In fact, isn't there a saying like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? Yes, I, I personally <laughs> believe that applies only to money and cleavage. <laughs> but I do think that we have to keep reinventing ourselves. And when we're young, when we go from our teens to our 20s or our 20s to our 30s and 30s to 40s even, I think you can roll with changes and just kind of let it happen and see where things lead. And then you get to your 50s and 60s, and I think you have to orchestrate it more purposefully. You can still be open to new things, and I think you have to be in order to stay interested. But I think that that was something I learned from the process of rebranding these books. I didn't want to feel like I was going backwards, dredging up these books from the past and, you know, dust them off and put them out there again. It couldn't be that. I felt like there has to be a reason to reinvent these books. And so I had to ask myself questions about why is this still relevant? Each one of these books does have a resonant, relevant message that still speaks to what's happening now. And there were a couple books that I chose to leave behind that I felt like, no, that doesn't resonate anymore. But then the act of reorchestrating the book covers so that they would all have a similar look, it made me really examine, what is my vibe? The only thing these books have in common is that I wrote them. So you know, how do I capture that vibe and turn it into a vision? And when I thought about that vibe as vision concept, I started applying it to other stuff, like my hair, the renovation of my kitchen, the cleaning out of my closet. It really goes across the board. And then the idea of streamlining the content in these books, 
it was a different world. 25 years ago, people were reading in a different way. And so you could write a big, thick book that had a lot of meandering, and people would maybe still gobble that up because you weren't competing with a world of technology and Facebook and, you know, we're kind of being trained to have shorter attention spans. And so I wanted to declutter, especially that first novel, which was kind of overwritten. It was the first thing I'd ever written. So I'll forgive myself for those meanderings back then. I was learning, but now I know. And so I can go in there with an editorial eye that I didn't have back then and streamline the writing so that it's like decluttering that closet. What is the uh, Marie Kondo sparks joy kind of feeling where instead of going into the book and like hacking pieces out of the manuscript saying, what can I get rid of? I went into the manuscript and selected pieces that I wanted to keep, like reverse engineered that process. I wasn't cutting, I was keeping. And then I applied that to downsizing of our home and somehow decluttering distilling that purpose in your life, it does spark joy. I'm totally on that condo bus. Of course, the big home in Houston was wonderful as you lived there. Can you say, oh, but this is so much better, or all of it was important to do because it's just living life? Yeah, I mean, to everything, there is a season. We had, our kids grew up in that house, and so we were a family with all the neighbor kids and the friends and everything coming and going. It was a different moment in our life. And I hope that whoever lives there now is having as much joy and laughter and music as we had in that house. Now it's about two artists who wanted to create a little haven for ourselves to focus on our art. And I love the quiet small life that we have now, it's perfect for us. Kind of harkens back to something crazy my husband and I did. We got married very quickly and really didn't know each other very well. We were just madly in love instantly and then realized about a year later, holy cow, I don't really know this person. (laughs) And what I do know about this person, I don't really like that much. So I told him I wanted to get divorced, just cut our (laughs) losses. And he got me to agree that we should take this nine-month contract with the Forest Service to live on a fire tower in Northern California. And his logic was that if you do this with me, when we get down from that fire tower, we'll either be happily married or happily divorced. And that it does make sense on some level. I don't know. I was young. But we went and lived in the wilderness in this 14 by 14 foot box on 30 foot stilts looking for forest fires. And yeah, we came down from that experience and knew that we could work together and that we could work anything out, that we could depend on each other and that this baseline love was something we could build on. And we're kind of back to that fire tower vibe now, just us in our little box. That is such a beautiful story. Again, so much reinvention. And the thing is, you were partners in having an open heart and open mind to exploring and having an adventure. Yeah, thank God I ended up with someone who is, he was a jet mechanic for United. And during his previous career, before he retired and became an artist, 
so he was all about the ball bearings, you know, he thought of things in a very laws of physics kind of way, while I've always been more esoteric in my ideas about things. And so we definitely balance each other that way. And we bring each other a little bit of clarity as we're figuring things out. We uh, call ourselves the Alliance. Like when we drink a glass of wine, we we'll always clink our glasses together and say the Alliance. It sounds so magical, but it's been something that you have both focused on. It doesn't just happen. Yeah, I think there's a lot that goes into, and certainly when I was in chemotherapy, that really was a smack upside the head for him. I was the super mommy before that. I did everything and was like the little queen bee of the house. Then when I was in chemo, he had to really step up. And I love that, you know, I wrote about this in my book, Bald in the Land of Big Hair, is a memoir about that two years that I was really sick and recovering. And one of the reviews for that book said it was a love letter to a remarkable caregiver. And that so nails it because I think the least interesting thing about any cancer memoir is the cancer. I think what's really fascinating about a good memoir that involves any kind of trauma is how people are resilient and find workarounds and come together or break apart or crumble and fix themselves. And certainly all of that happened during that whole period for us. Gary really stepped up and was amazing during that time. But we also had to wrap our heads around the idea that neither one of us was everything we would have hoped to be in that moment. And that we had to forgive ourselves and move on from that and say, whoa, that sucked. (laughs) (laughs) Anything that happened was like, okay, that stays in Vegas. (laughs) Part of what we learned from it was that all the mythology about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or what what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And, you know, all the things that people want to believe, well, if you pray hard enough, it'll be fine. That the platitudes really don't hold up very well to real life situations. Now, what I had read is that you had determined at the time of the diagnosis that you would do two things. One of them being that you were going to write and you wanted to leave this for your daughter. It was going to be a gift for your daughter. And the prognosis was horrible. They said maybe a 50% chance of surviving it. Is that right? Well, I had a 50% chance of surviving up to five years. Beyond five years, it was statistically very negligible chance of survival. And So thinking in terms of five years, my wonderful oncologist had me do something really difficult. She provided me with a workbook called Coping with End-of-Life Issues, and I didn't want to think about it. Gary was a little bit offended about it. No, we're going to keep a positive attitude. Mm. But she really nudged me, no, you need to do this. And I found that when I went through that workbook and figured out how all these nuts and bolts of my death would be, okay, that works. My family will continue on. Things that I think are so important and need to be taken care of will be either taken care of or forgotten. And 
what I came out of that experience with was a five-year plan. I just wanted to get the five years. And I thought, what can I do in this time? My kids are five and seven. They won't even really remember me very well. So I thought the two things I could realistically do was, number one, leave that handprint of loving kindness on my children's lives so that even if they didn't really remember that much about me, that would be in them, this loving kindness. And then second, I thought I could write one good book and get it published. And I had loved books all my life. I had written a first draft of Crazy for Trying, but I knew it wasn't up to where it could be. So I really worked on it, made it the best I could make it. And then all those rules that people told you about, well, this is what you have to do to get published and you have to go, you know, send it and wait three months for it to come back and blah, blah, blah. Hey, screw that. I didn't have time for that kind of shenanigans. I had a fire in my belly to get this book published. I pounded on every door I could until someone accepted it. And all those rules going out the window, it was like in that moment where my life was at the brink, I thought, I can't afford to have these rules apply to me. And lo and behold, they didn't. Do you look back on that, Joni, and think all that energy, you were so insistent on what you were going to accomplish, that there was energy focused on living and doing that was life-giving to you to overcome that cancer? You know, I haven't thought about it that way, but I'm sure you're right. I truly feel that if I had not become a writer in that moment, I would have died. And that knowledge, that gut feeling has kept me working, caring about my craft, learning more about my craft. I was a theater major in college, so I've always loved books. I've always been a voracious reader, but I felt like I had some catching up to do and really had to focus myself on learning the craft of writing and also keeping my work in a range where I love it. I love doing it. People ask me, what what kind of discipline does it take you to sit down and write a book for that many hours a day? It doesn't. It's no problem for me to sit down and write. It's a problem for me to get up and make dinner. Thank God Gary usually makes dinner or there we'd be like eating protein bars around here. (laughs) I don't think I've cooked dinner in probably 14, 15 years. Oh my, (laughs) that's a little bit of time. But yeah, I mean, that, he pretty much takes care of that kind of stuff because that's where the willpower comes in for me. Writing doesn't take any willpower for me at all. I love to do it. And so I think if you can keep the work in that realm where it's still exciting and interesting to you and pulling you in and making you want to sit there, that's so key. If the book doesn't make you want to sit down, then how is it going to make the reader want to sit down? Truly. And so in terms of the reinventing of ourselves, your story is so powerful. It's so incredible how you have done this through the decades and being able to envision it and the messages, not that necessarily Joni Rogers is that much more special than anyone. And you are special. This is wonderful work. But the message is also that, you know, it's out there. Find this for each of us, for ourselves. 
Yeah, I definitely don't think that I'm, I mean, I'm unique in the sense that every person is unique, but am I more talented than anyone else? I don't think so. I'm certainly not stronger or, you know, I'd like to think I'm smart, but I have my own set of raw material. Every single person hearing this has some skill set. They have this raw material within themselves. It's just a question of clarity, refining that sense of purpose. And an exercise that I do with my memoir clients when I'm ghostwriting a memoir, I will, if it doesn't seem to be starting out very easily, I will ask them to do something with me that's just focusing on the story of your life. Nutshell the story of your life in 10 words. Tell me what happened. Then let's expand that to 100 words with action details. How did it happen? Then you expand that to 1,000 words with motivation, description, characters. Why did it happen? What did it feel like? What did you learn? And then you reverse engineer that. You take that 1,000 words. Now scale it back to 100 words by asking yourself what mattered the most in that story, and then distill that answer to 10 words. Why am I here? And in that 10 words that you come up with, at the end of that exercise, I promise you will be able to apply those 10 words to every aspect of your life, whether you're, you know, remodeling your kitchen. Guess why that's on my mind? <laughs> um, you know, which relationships do I nurture or lovingly let go in my life? What is the work to which I'm going to devote my time, the precious natural resource of time? So I think that clarity of purpose really is huge. That's key, I think. And you've just given us such a wonderful exercise, if you will, that we can apply to ourselves either alone or with a friend or a confidant or a partner, that we can explore that. And we may not be writing a memoir. We may not be writing a book, but it sure helps us to look within and see more about who we are and what we're here to do. Well, Kate, I'm so grateful that you had the time to talk with me. This has been a really interesting conversation, thought-provoking. You're good at this. Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. It's been really a pleasure. Thank you. That brings us to the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Joni Rogers and Sunday Morning Magazine with Thomas Vozo. I'm Kate Daniels, your host, and I greatly appreciate your sharing this hour with me and these special guests. For details you might have missed or information you'd like to know, please just send me an email, kated at warm1069.com, and I will get right back to you. Also, if you'd like to listen again or to share these important stories with your family and friends, find the podcast on our Warm 1069 webpage. Just click on the podcast tab, then either of the show names, and then look for the guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of seeing life and the things around us with new eyes, new vision. Have a week of the same, and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Warm 1069. Good morning.